Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is the Book Ride Podcast. I'm Jeff O'Neill. And I'm Rebecca Shinsky. And today we're talking about the four quadrants of book success, maybe. Oh, we are. Okay. Yeah, I just put it in there. You did, Great. You, uh, yeah. You're not just looking at the agenda all the time, Rebecca. Late like breaking change, podcast plans. You don't I have an if surprised. this, then that, that sets you an alert. If like, I've entered a God. single new character into the Google Imagine Doc. me being alerted every time you change a Google Doc is a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> it's like clockwork orange for productivity. It's real bad stuff. Uh, we're going to say a farewell to N. Scott Mamaday. We're going to talk about how Argyle is bad and complicated, the worst of both worlds, <laughs> and a bunch of other book-related stuff. Um, I know you've got some feedback for me about your sort of um, uh, uh, inf- James Salterian influences, uh, and also maybe a kayak report. So, Rebecca, I'm going to throw it to you first. Where do you want to start? I mean, I can report that kayaking in a swamp is great. It was fun. It was great. Uh, it was great. Okay. It was really fun. Uh, I was outside Charleston, South Carolina, and there is a cypress and tupelo, uh, like forest there that like, I mean, this is the South. And so Mm. a lot of the land around Charleston is occupied by buildings that were once plantations that were, that were built on the backs of enslaved people. And they talk like pretty openly about that in Charleston now. Um, but this like, Cypress Tupelo swamp situation is near a bunch of plantations that grew rice and that floods naturally in the winter months, just as tides change between the ocean and like some of the nearby waterways. Um, so nobody's doing rice over there anymore, but it floods in the winter and you can kayak through it. And I did. We saw a ton of birds. It was a sunny, warm day for January. So there were a lot of reptiles. There were yellow-bellied sliders, which are these big turtles with yellow bellies. And they sit up on logs. And then when they're done, they just like, bloop, just slide back into the water. Um, Mm. There were allegedly some otters, but we didn't see any. And there is evidence all over the place of wild pigs. And I am terribly oh. disappointed that we did not see wild pigs. It's like, if I'm kayaking... Wild pigs are a problem. They're like a nuisance. Yeah, right? they're like all over the place. Yeah, we parked in this big like open field and the ground was all messed up and I thought that it was because this is a big field that people drive into all the time and the guy was like, oh no, this is evidence of wild pigs. <laughs> oh, they drove their Toyota RAV4 through there, the pigs. They've got their own... <laughs> yes, they've yeah. got their four the by pigs fours. are just yeah. joyriding on a, you know, on a Saturday mm. morning. Um, it was a good time. I... Did not bump into any like snaggle toothed uh, swamp girls. Dreamy. Oh, you didn't smoke yeah. show swamp girls. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with rusty nails in their feet. No Delia Owens. So, so do you think happened. if you were nine years old and left on your own <laughs> to live with the yellow belly sliders, oh my God. do you think you'd make it to puberty? 
Absolutely not. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> At least not like in one piece and without a bunch of interesting diseases, because that is, yeah. it's a pretty situation. That's not water you really want going in like open no. wounds. I mean, it, it has the word swamp attached to it, so... <laughs> Yeah, you don't want that. Yeah, Delia thing. Owens. I think, you know, just further evidence that fiction is not being fact-checked very well what was going on in, in uh, Where the Crawdads Sing. But my real feedback for you is that, mm. yeah, you are not the one who introduced me to James Salter. I came into this situation with an appreciation okay. for James Salter. Right, I read enough. A Sport in a Pastime in, like, 2008. Right. But you have not read all the James Salter, nor nor I think it's fair to say, would you read the LSU Press's um, academic biography of James Salter? Is that probably a fair assessment? Not. Yeah, I'm not no. going to read the biography, and I have one yeah. collection of James Salter travel essays that I'm saving for like the right travel moment. So you're going to take that and the buried giant into your the swamp. <laughs> When you finally go. Yes. I yeah. think I am going to, uh, maybe we'll do the Barry John. I've been thinking about some like big project around Ishiguru mm. for us, maybe. So we might dig up the Barry Giant. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's see. I guess a couple, this actually might feed into each other. Um, we'll see how elegantly or not I can do this. Not a lot to say here, but if you hadn't heard the news, um, the news came this week that last week, N. Scott Mamaday passed away a Titan in the world of American letters and a, you know, an ancestor of 20th century and, and really most of um, Native American fiction, in English at least, um, for his 1969 novel House Made of Dawn, debut novel that won the Pulitzer Prize and became a tentpole of multiple canons, um, passed away. And I don't know that he gets read as much anymore. Um, I, I first encountered so. him when I was in high school looking at a list of the best novels of the century and picked it up and was transported and moved and elevated and in all the kinds of ways that people read that book come across it. Um, so, fare thee well. I'm not an, an Scott Mamaday scholar uh, we'll link to a show, uh, link to a good old bit in the uh, show notes that the NYT did. And I was thinking about, there, so there's a question came up in the Patreon on a comment on the Patreon a couple days ago and trying to figure out what the best place to put these things is to re- reply to someone in email, save it for the book riot newsletter, which is a lot of fun or make it into a segment of the show. Cause that's what we had typically done for right? We mm-hmm. surface to the show and make a little bit of thing out of it. I think this is what may be worth talking about for just a minute. Cause I, I threw off talking about the book of love when we're doing the it books of February, this phrase that it could be a four quadrant hit, right? Yeah. Without much, if any explanation. And you responded to this person in Slack with a, you know, the Wikipedia definition of a four quadrants used in movies, which is right. That, I mean, and that's where I've got this idea. I think books are a little bit different. Um, and yeah. I think about them a little bit differently. But yeah, so th- I thought it'd be cool to, to elucidate that. What are the, do you yeah, know off the top of your head the quadrants in movies? Yeah, so the quadrants in movies are, it's broken down by age group and gender. So it's men under 25, men over 25, women under 25, women over 25. Mm-hmm. So a book that is a four quadrant hit, it fu- like plays in all time zones, should attract people of all ages, um, 18 and up, really. You should be able to get yeah. everybody. It's like the quintessential, like the date movie that both people in a hetero right. couple want to go see. And, the, and a family wouldn't mind going on a matinee. 
right? Yes, yeah. Necessarily. Like like Harry Potter is the best, or the, are the Marvel movies when they were at their peak. Like that's Yeah, I think the about. Marvel movies are the, yeah, peak Marvel is a great four quadrant example. Harry Potter is a little young, like the four quadrant thing doesn't really account for kids. Um, yeah. There are, and maybe that's a weakness <laughs> of that model. Right. But I, I agree. I think when we talk about four quadrants or really like, we can even abandon the idea of quadrants if we wanted to. What does a book that plays in all time zones look like um, is a little bit different, I think. Yeah. And so, and, and this is, this is a, a slight variation on like the it book rubric, but like, so when I was talking about Kelly Lincoln, it has the possibility to be a four quadrant hit. Here are the kind of, and we could work on the names if you want, but like, here are the four big buckets, right? One is sales. Can't, you can't ignore it, right? Mm-hmm. Does, does it actually move units? Do people buy it? Um, Another one is acclaim, and that can take all kinds of forms. Is it an Oprah pick? Is it a best, a notable book of the year? Is it a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize? Does it get a great review in New York Times? That's acclaim. The other one is buzz, and that sort of encapsulates the, is there a New Yorker profile? Are publishing industry people excited about it? Are people who have a bunch of friends on Twitter who got MFAs <laughs> tweeting about it and saying, oh my God, I love her, right? Is there a big book tour? Um, and then the last one is important slash profile. So is it is it going to be important into history or, and or does the author have a profile that can, this book is elevating it to everyone's going to pay attention to the next book or do they already have sort of an existing corpus of work that then it sits alongside all of these other great. So it's like more, not immortality, but it's doing something other than just selling books and people getting excited about that title. Is it building a legacy? Is it mm-hmm. building a profile? Is it the book you're going to teach in college classrooms, perhaps? Is it the kind of book that when we do the power ranking of 2019, we're going to have to at least consider it to do something? So those are my four. Yeah, parts, that's interesting. That I think about will it, will it sell is certainly the first yeah. question. Will it sell? Is it good? Yeah, I think do that kind people... of gets, I mean, it's hard to get the other three if it's not good. To be honest, so like it's almost an emergent property. I don't know. Plenty things sell that aren't good. No, no, I'm not talking about sales. But if it's important, it gets a claim and buzz. Oh, it's then probably it... good. Yes, <laughs> probably yes, good. yes, 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 yeah. 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 Um, but like, will it sell? Is it good? Mm-hmm. Do people talk about it? Yes. And I think the way that I think about what you call, you know, is it important? Is it high profiles? Like, and will it be like, will it last? Will we last? Sure. Did we like this for the six weeks that it was a new book Mm -hmm. or is it going to sort of Or even beyond the year, frankly, right? it's hard to know, right? In the year, two years, three years, stuff falls off. And that's the hardest one, I think. That's the hardest one. I think weirdly the sales one is, that's sort of the wild card. That's the seven ten split because you can sell books and not get any of the rest. Right. And you can have the rest and not sell. And not get sell, yeah. <laughs> and that's it's when hard. you get called a writer's writer. Yeah, or you're Jennifer Weiner. I mean, this is now old, right? Which is you're, you sell a bunch of books, you have a bunch of fans, you get warmly reviewed in the New York Times, but ain't no one talking about you as if one of the great writers of your de- generation right. or notable books of the year or finals for a pool. You don't get the... You don't get the prestige kind of stuff. And maybe prestige is we could do mm. will it last profile importance prestige. And sometimes there's an order with them. Like it's hard. Things can have no buzz and then get a claim in sales, but it's hard. Yeah. Um, things can be important without a claim 
that usually means we, you know, that's a Moby Dick situation, but that's extremely rare. It's like, it didn't sell. No one cared, thought it was dumb. A hundred <laughs> years, 50 years later, some English professor's like, what about this whale book? And I was like, oh my God, you're right. Like that doesn't happen right. very often. But yeah. It or if you want to like take a couple recent examples just to run them through the model, mm. I think like the rabbit hutch was an, an interesting case for this yeah. last year of like, it had critical acclaim. It won the national book award. It had buzz people in the industry, Enough people in the industry talked about it enough. Plenty of them were people who had MFAs who all, who liked this person who wrote this right. book who had an MFA, right. Tess Gunty. Uh, and it seemed like it might be building towards prestige, high profile, some, like it and won sales. the National Book Award, and then maybe sales. <laughs> it missed and they sales. Changed the pa- and they changed the cover for the paperback. So <laughs> right. Not that tells us all we need sign. to know. Yeah, it yeah. missed on yeah. sales. Uh, so you can have those, or as you were saying, like you can have a huge commercial success and then mm-hmm. miss one or all of the other three. Absolutely. Um, and be kind of yearning for them. Which I think that's the tough case. That's the tough place to be in. You don't want to have three of the four or or one. I would happily take three of the four to be honest with you. But I'm a man of moderate <laughs> needs and desires and ego. I think everyone ego, should be happy with ego. Ego is four. the keyword there. Ego is the keyword yeah. there. I think because yeah. in the like in the Jennifer three Weiner example, a, three or four is a moonshot. Right. Three and four is she's amazing. making. Jennifer Weiner is, has had a decades long career and she's just an example here like the most prominent example because she has talked about this about like I have sold a ton of books and I want critical acknowledgement where like James Patterson is fine that no one thinks his books should win awards he is unbothered he seems (laughs) unbothered right he does not seem to care Um, so we're not ragging on Jay Wine she's talked about this publicly so she's the most available example of it Mm -hmm. but it's it it's an ego question. Like you're, you're going all the way to the bank. She is Scrooge McDucking and like the next couple generations of her family are probably going to be fine from her book sales. Um, she's by that definition, incredibly successful by the definition that the publishing industry mostly looks to like your sales history is one of the most, if not the most important factors when you are trying to get future book deals and you're a person who's already had books out, how did they sell? Because if they're Mm -hmm. great, but your first couple didn't sell, you're going to have a hard time. She is, she's guaranteed to go on. She's got a dedicated audience. She continues to do well and she updates, you know, the audience that she's writing for. She kind of like stays with the times. The Jennifer Weiner stories are moving as culture moves. She's doing a good job with it, but she really wants the acclaim. She wants the prestige. That's a tough place to be in where then the folks who have all the things that ring the ego bells, like they got a claim. You're Tess Gunty. You won the national book award, but like she's not looking at those Jay Wine well, Book you know what numbers. she's doing? She's she's in a creative writing workshop at uh, San Diego State University teaching to make yeah. her, you know, I mean, right. which is a great job and, and wonderful. And many, many, many writers that we talk about this on show, on the show, probably could not live a Most middle class lifestyle. Right? But yeah, Most. But I'm saying even the ones we talk about on the show, they get oh, yeah. to the point where we're talking about them even. Um, that's just a situation. And the other thing about the four quadrant book, exceedingly rare mm-hmm. i don't even we, we maybe this we can add this wrinkle to when we do a, a look back or power rankings like how many of these are four quadrant books oh because yeah. all the top 10 are not all four quadrant books they are not no is no. there one a year i mean what do you think the no i don't one, I, one and a half? I think the under is yeah. one a year like maybe the last book that we read and talked about on the show that i'm i, I i'm pretty asked, sure well 
a Clara and the Sun. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe the Rebecca Mackay. Um, no, sorry. Nope. Importance, prestige profile, does it? It's not. Oh, that's true. I mean, you yeah. could be, I mean, I will be wrong, but I would not bet on that. I think a lot of people would disagree with us about that. We were kind of middling to Luke, like lukewarmish on the book, but a lot of I'm folks. I'm not saying you can't like it, it, but you know how hard yeah. it is? That book is like two notches worse of secret history and secret history is just barely a, no I'm serious and <laughs> You're right, secret history yeah. is just barely a four quadrant book yeah I think and I in my a, but just in, barely yeah. in my reading of it too it's not as good as the great believers so she like took yeah. a step Makai took a step right. back in that example yeah Even Clara and the Sun like I think Demon you just have to win a Nobel I have, <laughs> which I have read actually at this I don't think I said it. I read Demon Carpet over break it's really really oh, good great lots of awards we can talk about mm-hmm. some other time I don't know it's going to have the importance profile. That's the King Solver upper mid list. Like, is it any one of those going to be enough to last? I just don't know. Yeah. I, I don't think so. It's a good question. So. Um, Let's talk about Clara so, and the Sun and why it does yeah, then. <laughs> yeah, just, you know, we're going to have a Clara and the Sun. We're going to talk about the first 25 pages of every show. You can fill out your bingo cards now. Um, but again, so it's no besmirching to say that it's not a four quadrant book. We're talking about Mount Rushmore, immortal, yeah, culture shifting, exceedingly books. rare, right? Yeah. And so when we're looking at Book of Love, that it even has a shot to do it is it's fascinating because a lot of those books, most of the books we talk about, don't even have any shot. Even the books that will win awards have a bunch of sales, but when you see a book that looks like it might be right, it's like look, it's like looking at a fifteen year old athlete and saying like. Most of them don't turn anything, but they have to have these things mm-hmm. now or there's no way they're going to ever make the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Well, and I think, I don't know, such a fun age felt like a debut that was going to ring four quadrants. And a debut four quadrant book, I think, is different from like, like in the middle 22. of a writer's like, career. There's like three of them. Yeah. Where, yeah. right. Like it had sales, it had a claim, people talked about it, and it seemed like it could be marking the beginning of an important literary career. Yeah. But it's, it was the first book. And so like the jury will be out for a while on, will this be an important literary career? The mm-hmm. subject matter of the book itself already feels like a product of its time. Like it's a it little does. bit I agree. stale. Yeah. I agree. I agree. And so those are all things that, that, again, it's extremely hard to do, but that's how I think about it. And maybe a good summary is how we think about it. it book is, it book cannot determine profile or importance or no. like that's, that's, that's why we do it by month because who knows what the long history is going to look like. We're just looking at current buzz, sales potential, sales history, and prognosing a little bit about a claim. Everything else is in the lap of the gods at mm-hmm. that point. So that's how I think of it. Um, and you know, you you may other people may differ. That's totally fine. You may add a quadrant, or you may have a different kind of situation, um, or you know, you may weigh those things differently. But if if something can tick all those boxes, it's going to be on. It's going to be in print forever, and you're going to be able to find it at any bookstore you walk into, right. and it'll be on syllabi, and it'll be you know that author's face will be on tote bags. Yeah, like that's, rare. And sometimes you have to do more of them. And so, yes. To become an immortal, you have to have multiple of these. Like yeah, that's, it's, that's what's nuts. Yeah, it's rare. It's difficult. You cannot engineer it. <laughs> no. Yeah. Nor can you expect it, nor is anything right. that's not oh, yeah. anything of a failure. Yeah. <laughs> Man, you are in for a world of hurt if you yeah. are expecting this, but I would or you're going to be disappointed. Yeah, sure. That's the dream, right? Is you sell a bunch of books and everyone loves you, and you go down in history and you get to get buried in Westminster Abbey. Right. I mean, well, I wanted to be like, Mary Lou Retton when I was a kid, but my life is not a failure. <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah, grew it. I mean, not, I mean, figured it. <laughs> not literally. Not yeah. literally, yeah. <laughs> 
Today's episode is brought to you by Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters. Troubled Waters is an intimate portrait of two generations, a granddaughter and a grandmother, coming to terms with what it means to be family, Black women, and alive in a world on fire. In heartfelt lyrical prose, Mary Inez Hegler weaves an unforgettable story of the climate crisis, Black resistance, and the enduring power of family. Narrated by Janice Abbott-Pratt and written by climate justice writer Mary Anise Hegler, the Troubled Waters audiobook is available everywhere May 7th. It follows Corinne as she plans to stage a dramatic act of resistance and peels back the scabs of her family wounds and puts her safety in jeopardy. Both grandmother and granddaughter must bring their unspoken secrets into the light to find a path to healing. Known for her essays that dissect and interrogate the climate crisis, drawing heavily on her personal experience as a black woman with deep roots in the South, Mary Inez Hegler brings us her first work of fiction titled Troubled Waters. Make sure to pick it up. Thanks again to Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters, for sponsoring this episode. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, okay, so there's that. Um, do we want to, speaking of something that doesn't seem to have four quadrant potential <laughs> at this point, uh, even if Taylor Swift did write this, there is no way she's taking ownership of it. <laughs> I think that's the most succinct way to put it. I have not even come across a, a book review of Argyle in nope. a uh, significant publication. It comes out when? This weekend? The movie or I book? Think I think so. Remember the point. movie is out tomorrow on the 2nd. Okay. Uh, so by the time folks are listening to this on Monday, the movie will have had a weekend. So, you know, in a couple days, the next time you and I pod together, we will know what the first weekend box office take for Argyle mm. was. Um, but Variety was unimpressed. Um the headline that is in this review by Peter de Bruges is it's tough keeping track of which ways up. Uh, and it's a convoluted plot that puts a fiction writer at the center of the action. Uh, so not, not great reviews for the movie. Uh, and yeah. then over which at Vox, which happens, it does happen. That's, That's fine. A, it's a everyday story. It's yeah. It's just with all of the conspiracy theories and chatter around Argyle, it is turning out to be true. We were, I think, right that the most interesting thing about Argyle is the conspiracy theory yes. <laughs> and not like the book or the movie itself. Um, Constance Grady over at Vox, wonderful reporter, is willing to dig into stuff. She did the homework on Argyle and she links in her piece uh, to a piece at the Washington Post by Sophia Nguyen, uh, who like really, really did the legwork to try to figure out is Ellie Conway a real person 
does she exist or is Ellie Conway like, you know, not even a pseudonym for someone, but just like, who even knows? (laughs) Did AI write this book? And what Sophia Nguyen found out was that in the acknowledgements for the book, the writer known as Ellie Conway thanks Robert Massey, who is a British astronomer, who she says explained star charts to her. So being the reporter that she is, Sophia Nguyen calls (laughs) up Robert Massey, and Massey told her that while he talked to a novelist writing a contracted spy thriller for Penguin Random House, her name wasn't Ellie Conway, it was Tammy Cohen. Uh, Tammy Cohen has written like mid-list Uh, spy thrillers before. She's a British writer, and she is connected to Matthew Vaughn, the director of Argyle, because her agent, Felicity Blunt, is married to Stanley Tucci, who appeared in Matthew Vaughn's movie. This is like six degrees of cameo. The movie about the making of Argyle. I'd watch that. Yeah, this is much more interesting. (laughs) So this theory goes that Matthew Vaughn wanted like that they had this uh, they already had the script and that Matthew Vaughn, according to this theory, thought it would be fun to have a book tie in. So what if he tried to figure out who the writers were in his social web? And he's like, okay. Tucci, who I've worked with, yeah, is married to a literary agent. That literary agent probably has a thriller writer. Let's do some packaging. Uh, Mm -hmm. So one of the most boring possible answers to this, assuming that this theory holds water, which it certainly seems that it does, is this is just a, a, a normal writer that some people know, but most people wouldn't, who wrote under a pseudonym so that it could be packaged to go along with the whole Argyle bit. And look, that's just bad staff work. Not getting an NDA in front of the astronomer you consulted. Right. <laughs> that it's just right there in the acknowledgments. And, and Vaughn's like playing this game. And again, this whole thing by Grady is worth the read because it there is. is a bit of it's, your eyebrows will go up and down and sideways. And like, wasn't expecting Stanley Tucci. Where Vaughn is like, it's based on the fourth book in this series yeah. that I like. And that's. That and seems the, to contradict the reporting that happens later. So who knows? At this yeah, point, and this the, is like the, the jig fourth is up, book doesn't man. exist yet. Yeah, but maybe he's heard the ideas of it. Yeah, this the jig is up, and this is a very poorly executed jig. <laughs> Just, well, here's the thing: you cannot expect to have a four quadrant book, nor can you expect for the twi- the Taylor Swift information locus to descend on your IP field. Because that's what happened. Is this a story if we don't have this Taylor Swift? Are we even talking about this? Even if all the other things are the same. We're not talking. No one cares. Well, we still don't. We have not answered the question of, are the Taylor Swift Easter eggs planted there on purpose? And if Vaughn is trying to do... This whole let's have a fun well, time. Then you got thing. your own crop set, let's my guy. Make, if you right, did that, then I've got right. no sympathy. Let's make for it. it interesting. But like, if you intentionally chose Taylor Swift Easter eggs because yes. you just wanted it to be part of the wild goose chase, and then you didn't NDA this astronomer, that's right? So the goose chase is easily solvable and very unremarkable. Just mm-hmm. bad job. Uh, and 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 Grady tries to be pretty generous here. It's like you know. She, you can turn to is the Princess Bride. I'm like, oh, take the Princess Bride's name out of your mouth. I mean, I guess maybe that's what they hoped that it's like this is a mouthpiece or becomes fun. But I, I don't know when the, when 
the Princess Bride came out, was William Goldman out there like, you know, I don't know. This is like a friend of mine heard. It doesn't seem like <laughs> Goldman's jag. No, like he's, uh, I mean, the movie came out first and they he did the book around it. And, and Grady even notes here that the actual book of The Princess Bride that William Goldman wrote refers to itself as being abridged, but it is yes. the only thing that exists. There is not an unabridged version. <laughs> of the yeah. book but every year or two apparently people get mad on the internet going to look for the unabridged version <laughs> well and then like on some of the old copies there's no yeah i don't remember like what the intros are i don't even know what a first edition yeah, no. of princess bride looked like I'm yeah you gotta you have to know that it's a bit and you have to be in yeah. on the bit with goldman and that's part of the fun of that yeah. that if you just picked it up and you don't know it's a bit, you do think that like someone named S. Morgenstern has written this story and is mm-hmm. is telling you about it, stepping out and breaking the fourth wall and talking to the reader. Yeah. Um, let's take a sponsor break and uh, come back real quick. So I think that is a rickety pitch for a movie. I've got a better one for you. Would you like to hear my movie pitch? Um, I'm terrified and interested, Yes. Okay, think, so I'm going to set the scene, I'm going to give you a vibe, a mood board, okay. if you will. Do people still use I'm that here. term, or is that hideously 90s? Um, do people, vision I boards, think pe- mood boards? People do, people do vision boards, yeah. Yeah, it's, okay. It's a thing. A vision board here. Think think Dead Poet Society. Mm-hmm. Think Mona Lisa Smile. Think okay. Perks of Being a Wallflower. Listen, so you're these, speaking my language. I know, I'm, 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 I'm shooting ducks in a barrel. So, it's a... <laughs> a lot of ducks in barrels lately. Well, that's how you shoot them. That's what makes it easy. It's the hard part is getting the ducks in there. Though I don't know why I just don't shoot them while you're crawling. That's a whole other conversation about that metaphor I've always wondered about. Um, anyway, so it's one of these classic setups where you have a relatable, approachable, and kind of unknowable teacher, authority, mm-hmm. mentor kind of figure, the, right? The the Good English teacher who changes your life, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, Um. But in this case, it's based on the true story of this teacher in Houston, Texas, or excuse me, librarian in Houston, Texas, that has developed, curated, and made accessible by means not yet discovered Mm. a clandestine shelf of banned books and made it available to students in, I don't know, their purview. So there's a link, there's a piece in NPR, all the names are anonymous. Um, I'm not even sure how, let's see, who, who did a good job here? Netta uh, Ulubi wrote the piece for NPR, or it's an audio story. I'm not sure which, the chicken or the egg here. Um, and it's a secret bookshelf mm-hmm. of, of banned books that kids can go get. And a librarian is telling them where to go get it. And it's, it's in parts unknown. That's Love it. Let's give it, give it to me. Give it to me. <laughs> I'm deeply here for that. I hate that this has to exist, but if it does, yes. then I'm here for the story. <laughs> Yeah. And if this the is kind of like society um, of Houston, Texas, yeah, like a, a contemporary, sadly American version of reading Lolita yeah. in Tehran that came out yes. like 20 years ago now. Yeah. And, and they've got, you know, people, you know, they've got kids of all different identities and interests and they're meeting mm-hmm, together and they mm-hmm. form a little book club and they're reading really controversial stuff like the dictionary <laughs> and, you know, the, the world's going to start to come apart the seams. Ripley's and Believe It or Not, it, man. I think it has this, I think it has a potential to do a lot of stuff that Dead Poet Society was trying to so do too. to be about rebellion yeah. and free mm-hmm. thinking and independence and conformity in a different kind of lens. So I, I, I think this is... A, I generally this think is this is a great a idea. idea. I know. I Someone agree. Someone should do this. Someone okay. should do this. So that's this. the story. That's, I love that. 
and Anything made her else efforts. Anything story particularly? I don't want to make this about my bad screenplay ideas because Lord knows the only thing you well, hear less from someone better than Argyle. Well, yeah, yeah. May their efforts yeah. succeed. Uh, I was so glad to see the story and uh, that Nada Ulabi was able to keep everyone anonymous. I hope that they're able to maintain that um she does explain why npr is not naming this teacher uh, the librarian or the students but this is i mean this is what resistance looks like this is what activism looks like in a really groose rats <laughs> grassroots rats. you spent too many too much time in a bog Sounds like something that live in a swamp, a grouse rat. Definitely. There's definitely yeah. something in there called a, a grouse rat. It's a, it's a rodent of unusual size, just to mm, you know, that's bring it call. all. Now we're doing it, yeah. Welcome to podcasting. That was oh, a segue. Um, <laughs> I think this is a great idea. I bet that there are, I bet and hope that there are a lot more examples of this happening. Librarians are punk AF. And resourceful. Are, yes. Yeah. And are really passionate about protecting kids First Amendment rights, protecting access, making sure that people have the opportunity to read these kinds of books, to explore the world, to see themselves reflected on pages, all of those things. And this is a big risk, you know, like they have to anonymize names to talk about it on NPR yeah. because the far right takes violent action in some cases against people who do things like this. So it, it's not a small gesture nope. that this librarian is doing. This is a big this deal. This person probably gets fired if it's found oh, out. Like, you know, yeah. I'm sure they... Like, is there a witch hunt risk. in Austin right now because this happened on NPR? <sighs> or are you banking on the fact that no one who is on the wrong side of this is reading and listening to NPR? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, there's probably a 4chan thread out there. That yeah. I Trying nowhere. to figure out who it is. Uh, yeah, it's yeah, just have fun going to succeed. all the places that have dictionaries. But I guess that's I think, Florida, pardon me. You know, I hadn't thought about this until you pitched this obviously mm. great idea for a screenplay. Yeah. But this book band stuff is one of the like signal cultural stories Absolutely. of this time in history. And when we get through it, people are going to tell stories about it. This will be the kind of thing that will show up in, I don't know if we're, if we're in 2030 and people are writing TV shows and movies set in the early 2020s about teenagers, you're going to see yep. this kind of stuff happening. I'm kind of surprised there hasn't been like a book banning episode of Abbott elementary yet. Well, um, you know, we get these stories from time to time, but they're all metaphorized, right? Of like, you know, sometimes they're more let, but like footloose or sure. pump up the volume or, or even a handmade sales, like, okay, we're going to, you don't even have to metaphor, it, you don't have to I mean, do anything. It happens it's in right Field of Dreams. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Step aside, you Nazi cow. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm glad to know this is happening. What a great resource for these kids. It's clearly very yes. important. May their efforts succeed. May their anonymity continue. And may yeah. we not need this very soon. That's right. Okay. Um, let's take a little break. Or no, we can go right into front list foyer. There's some late breaking news about Spotify saying they paid a bunch of people uh, for audiobooks and Audible's worried. I don't. Is there mm -hmm. much beyond the headline here? I couldn't no. figure out what else to say. There's about. not much beyond the headline here. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, Spotify says that it's paid publishers tens of millions of dollars of royalties. Th that, um, matter, that number matters. You're right. You're right yes. to bring up because that's not tens of millions nothing. of dollars. That's Literally not nothing. Not nothing. <laughs> 
Um, and it hasn't been that long that the 15 hours per month of audiobook listening have been available. This is talking no. about the U.S. So tens of millions of dollars of royalties like that seems significant um, to me. The Society of Authors is you know, still concerned because they have not seen the details of these royalty payouts. Um, and so they're concerned at the, quote, lack of clarity about the deals. They're waiting to see the effect this will have on authors' incomes. And the open question they have that I think is one of the bigger open questions we have is, are these additional sales or are they simply taking market share from Amazon. Are new people finding audiobooks because they're available on Spotify? Yeah. Are we growing the audiobook sector? Or are people just moving to Spotify because they've already got premium and now they don't need Audible credits? Um, but apparently there was a leaked recording of a recent internal meeting at Audible um, in which an employee asked the Audible CEO, Bob Kerrigan, why the company was in fear of its competition. And Kerrigan said, it's hard to ignore what Spotify is doing. Um, that's the only quote that we have from them, but it's interesting. This is what this is definitely the outcome Spotify wants. They want Audible to be yep. scared. They want, they want Audible's to be employees taking market asking share. the CEO how why exactly. should we be nervous and them and, not denying it or waving it off. Right. And that that's that's the meaningful thing here. That Spotify is paying. It seems to be successful enough that they've paid out tens of millions of dollars in royalties. We don't know the details because no one knows the details of how those are mm -hmm. determined, but it seems like a significant number. Um, and it's enough that Audible is paying attention. We also have not seen like a quarterly report yet that would tell us how Audible's let's see. Sale, so Q4 sales were impacted. Let's see. Those will come out that will be useful in like, what, 2029? <laughs> the useful royalty statements for all this kind of stuff? Right, so. or like Audible's Q4 report, I don't think is out yet. Do they even um, break it down by that kind of stuff? Like, I don't even know. I don't. I haven't looked. Audible's owned by Amazon, so right. I, I doubt Amazon's breaking out Audible's quarterly report. I don't know how that works either. Yeah, I have um, not dived into but, that But, I yet. mean, tens of millions gives you a ballpark number. We have no idea. Mm -hmm. It could have been tens of thousands of dollars. Like, there's no uptake, because you know there are civilians in our lives we know doing it but like the civilians in our lives know to tell us they're listening to yeah. audiobooks on spotify so i don't know that that's the right data set and it's still early like i think we're in early adopter time yeah. for spotify audiobooks because they're not doing like a ton of awareness stuff about it it was in the app like i think there were some pop-ups in the app when it first launched but now you have to be looking for an audiobook to even notice that it says included with Spotify Premium. Yeah. And the yeah. civilians in my life are definitely still learning about it. Like just last week, I was out with a group of people that I hadn't seen in a while, and one of them mentioned audiobooks. And I was like, oh, well, you have Spotify Premium, right? Like it's included in there. You can you can say goodbye to your Audible credits. And she was like, oh my God, what? Like that's, this is amazing. Maybe we should do some uh, influencing. Should we, get, should we start a TikTok account that's just to teach the good word of, <laughs> of Spotify? Where you can get stuff? No, just whatever, you know, where you can get a yellow bellied slider. Um, it's where, I, being where, a TikTok. The best, the best wooden object to shoot ducks in. Yeah, know, this uh, it sounds, sounds like a tough. I don't want to be a TikTok influencer. They get weird emails. <laughs> I think that's not all they get. Um, we're yeah, not going to get yeah. that story today. We'll maybe save that for uh, uh, the um, newsletter. Okay, let's do a front list foyer. We both read stuff. You want to go first or you want me to go sure. first? Sure. I'll go first. Um, I listened to Soundtrack of Silence by Matt Hay on audio oh, uh, on my road trip. Okay. Yeah. He, this is, I think, a kind of a comp for Country of the Blind by Andrew Leland mm -hmm. that came out last year. Matt Hay uh, was born with a like very rare 
condition that can be passed on genetically, but it can also happen spontaneously. And that's what happened to him that causes um, tumors uh, along your like spinal cord and nervous mm. system uh, and gradually causes hearing loss. So he found out in his 20s that he had this and he was going to gradually become deaf, but would eventually become completely deaf. Um, and it chronicles that experience alongside like his one of the big ways that he coped with this was, OK, if I'm never going to there's a point where I'm not going to be able to hear music. I want to really commit to memory the songs that I love. So he kind of, he builds the soundtrack of his life. It's like 60 some songs and he memorizes them in a really hardcore fashion. Like he kind of had practice sessions for himself in the car where he would be singing along and like tapping out the rhythm. And then he would turn the volume down and keep tapping out the rhythm. And then if he was in the right spot, when the volume turned back up, he would know that like, okay, I can really keep this song true he's like very serious about it mm. a lot of it he meets his wife when they're in college um so a lot of these songs on the soundtrack are either things from his childhood that is he listened to with his family or songs that he listened to with his wife as they were falling in love really sweet stuff um it's a it's a mix of like what was the personal experience like of starting to lose your hearing and then gradually becoming deaf um he writes about the day it happened like the day he goes to work and realizes oh i can't hear anything like even with the hearing aids and the implants that he had um it's good i think it's closer to rob sheffield like writing with affection about music than it was to andrew leland writing journalistically about both blindness yeah. and his experience. Also, I feel bad for Matthew Hay that he has to get comped to that book by Andrew Leland because that's a really special mm. book. Yeah, okay, um, interesting. Yeah, it was sweet and enjoyable and interesting. And I did learn a lot about deafness and the technologies that have developed around it and also sort of like the history and culture of the deaf community. Um, yeah, not like an A++, but that it was a good listen. Um, I enjoyed listening to him tell that story and and this, I think I'm just glad that more of these kinds of memoirs yeah. are being written. Um, it continues to destigmatize disability and really establish that these are all individual stories and experiences. Um, so that was that was good. Um, and I read Martyr by Kaveh you, Akbar. You, you did read Martyr. We, it I was did. Touch and go there. That you were going to get. It was that. touch and go. <laughs> the setup is uh, it's about a young man. He's in his 30s in most of the book, but there are flashbacks. Um, whose mother died in a plane crash leaving Iran when he was young. He was born in Iran. Now he lives in the U.S. He's lived in the U.S for most of his life. Um, and so his life has been defined by the loss of his mother, then the loss of his father. Um, he has been haunted by like, she just died in this random plane crash. Like her death doesn't, how do you make somebody's death mean something? I want my death to mean something. Someday he becomes obsessed with the idea of martyrs and of making your death matter. Um, and he decides to like, set out on he's a poet the character is a poet and writer um decides to like set out on this project of like i'm gonna write some big book about martyrs at the same time he sees a profile in the paper of an artist who is dying of breast cancer and is doing a performance art piece at like the brooklyn museum and the deal is she's going to be there through her dying days and you can go and talk to her like, but hmm. she's just, she's near the end and she's hanging out until the end. And he's like, this fits right in with my martyr thing. So he hmm. goes to New York. He meets this artist. Um, they have a few days worth of conversations. And then 
things happen. Um, you get the book is like it has debut novel syndrome in that like there's all that happening, but then also there are like couple page inserts of the draft of the book about martyrs that this character is writing, and there are couple page long chapters that tell things from his mother's perspective in 1987, and from an uncle's perspective, and from his dad's perspective. Like it kind of moves, it moves all over. It does a lot of things. It's a really ambitious debut novel. I think it's a very good debut novel. The whole thing hinges on a big, like huge coincidence that I could not forgive it for. Um, I read some reviews just to try to ground like my reaction against all of the critical, like just real glowing reception for this that I'm seeing Mm -hmm. everywhere. And a couple of them were like, yeah, it has some big coincidences, but like I can forgive it. (laughs) I just couldn't. It didn't. uh, I'm glad that I read it. It's not going to be my favorite book of the year. Um, it's I would be shocked if it's not nominated for the National Book Award, though. It, this has like the flavor of the debut, like the judges, the kind of thing that they liked about the Rabbit Hutch. It has mm. those the, those kinds of qualities. It's also overtly a book about art <laughs> and about like you using to art it. to make meaning out of your life. The author lives in I'm Iowa City. This. That's an all I need to hear. <laughs> Call off the dogs. You can stop talking. It's done. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah. yeah. So that's that. It was, and I, I did, I had to ask our contributors who loved the book at one mm. point, I was asking a couple of them like, okay, these like interstitial chapters feel like unnecessary to me. Is he going to land this plane? Uh, and those folks said it's worth it for the ending. I think it's a very, very impressive debut. Um, I, I think also that maybe like the fawning is a little bit excessive i had a really hard time with the the big coincidence so that's i don't want to spoil it it's a tricky one the the coincidence as um tool trick device Mm -hmm. i also saw it coming so that was yeah Hmm. yeah because what about you you know there's a world in which I'm going to talk about Kyla Reed's new book here in just a minute. Mm. We're such a fun age. The middle, one of the great, oh my God, this is about to happen moments in my reading life over the last 10 years is the middle of that book, which in a way is a coincidence, right? I mean, it's a a real coincidence, but I also can be coincidence averse. So I don't know, I don't know if there's a grand aesthetic unified theory of like which coincidences are more sellable (laughs) than others, right? Because some of them you're like, fine, I don't care. And some are like, no, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what that's about. I, I don't know. And it's different for everybody, I think. Yeah, and yeah. I think it's different from everybody. But I think I feel like I'm even the movable feast here. I think on mm. one given day, maybe I would find something believable and not. Or there's other factors that I'll overlook it for some other reasons. Um, but yeah, the coincidence is tough. It's very it tough, is tough. To, to get a handle on. Um, my reading, um, I guess the thing in terms of in terms of reading experiences, I think this was stronger. I did read The Fury by Alex Michaelides, the mm. thriller writer's new book. I was poking around pals, and I was just trying stuff on for size. I've been put, picking stuff up and putting them down. I guess side point, for the first time in as long as I can remember, I did not listen to an audiobook in January, and I don't know why. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. That is surprising for all, you. All text. All all digital? No, not quite, but almost. Um, so I was like, I'm going into pals. There's a bunch of stuff I wanted to try. And I was like, okay, maybe if I can get a page turner going. I kind of want to know what the deal with this book anyway, because it's the third whack at the pinata. Um, the Silent Patient was a big hit, and the mains sold a lot of books, but I don't think it was received very well. I certainly didn't think it worked, and then I was like, okay, this one, and it worked great for me. It's a mystery. It's on a Greek island. 
the central character is a retired movie star who kind of withdrew just because she wanted to. She's got a bunch of hangers-ons with stuff going on, and they've got a bunch of crap going on. There's a bit of like a Knives Out feel to it, a little Mm. more like art referential. And I was into it. Is it going to be one of my favorite books of the year? Depends. The book that I read the fastest, maybe. You know, that I was like really compelled to finish. It was artfully done, overtly references Agatha Christie as all these kind of oh. books must that are set on like yeah. islands in the islands in the Mediterranean with, you know, kind of a locked room cast. Um, it does it has twists, and I think there was maybe one too many, like there are in most of these, but I kind of enjoyed them all. I didn't see where it was going and I found it great. enjoyable. I'm sure it's gonna sell a bunch. That sounds so like a great mystery whelmed. experience. Yeah. Whelmed. Solid. Love it. We love to be whelmed. Um, so I'd recommend that for you, like literary mystery kind of stuff. Um, come and get it by Kite Reed. Uh, Rebecca asked me what I thought this morning. Should she read it? Um, I gave a negative response in terms of whether or not I should read it. Having said that, it is super interesting as a document. I find myself still, I finished it a few days ago. I'm still kind of thinking about it. I don't know what it's about. Um, exactly. I have some theories and I'll, here, here's a kind of, um, uh, material criticism point that I kind of feel like it maybe mattered, but it's hard to know. So I read this as a review digital galley, but the formatting was kind of weird mm. for the whole thing. And I wonder if That's it affected tough. my reading experience, but it was, I could read it. Like you I wasn't noticed confused, it. Yeah. but like, you know, the paragraphs would like indent in weird place. And it was, some of the mm. words were hyphenated, like it was ready to be paginated differently. And just some of the margins were weird. And again, I understood what was happening. It was totally readable. But the whole thing felt disjointed, and I can't help that. This couldn't have helped, right? It didn't make yeah. it feel smooth. But there's three main characters here, um, all centered around a dorm at the University of Arkansas in 2015. Um, one of them is a transfer student who comes from a different university who's had a traumatic experience, and she comes hoping to take a creative writing, creative nonfiction class from character B, who's a 38-year-old creative nonfiction writer who's visiting as, as a professor. She's from up, you know, up the country, but she's mm-hmm. coming down. She's had a breakup. She wants some time away. And the third character is a 24-year-old RA who is RAing at this dorm. One of the things that's interesting about it is I'm not sure, I can't think of another example of representations of public university dorm life. I can't think I've ever read anything with this representation in it, which is interesting. It's a particular thing. DePaul, they have big dorms. That's a Catholic private school. It's a different deal. Oh, at Loyola? Yeah. There were big dorms. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Loyola. I knew that. That's all right. I I mixed up my Jesuit Chicago schools. (laughs) I mean, we had, they seemed like big dorms, but they also, I don't think were nearly as big as like the dorms at KU. Yeah. Um, And I didn't live in one of those. I lived in a scholarship hall at the University of Kansas, but it was a dorm situation, right? It's university housing. You're thrown in with people you don't know. Right. And you're 18 and you got nothing but time, right? Yeah. Isn't there Um, some like dorm stuff in Art of Fielding? There's some like college dorm stuff in that, I think. That's a million years old. If you're right, it's a wonderful call. I know. Liberty. Yeah, let's take a, let's go down just a a quick aside that it seems that Chad Harbach might have another novel coming out and it's listed on some of the like non-U.S. publishers websites, but it is nowhere to be found on U.S. publishers websites. And Art of Feeling is published by Hachette. Do we comprise like 40% of the addressable market for the next Chad Chad Harbach novel? (laughs) 
you had to be blogging in 2010 to really to really be right, on to care. one here. I'm yeah, not okay. even sure that I'm in the addressable market for Chad Harbaugh at this yeah, point, but I'm here for the for a uh, like let's Harriet the spy our way into what's going yeah. on with this thing. Is there going to be a new one? Anyway, anyway sorry, so, yes, dorm room life. So Carry that on. I found very. But anyway, if we're reaching for the art of fielding, Rebecca, I think that proves my sort of case here, <laughs> okay. which is this is an and it's a it's a massively experienced phenomenon especially mm-hmm. by people who buy literary novels frankly right um know someone and there's there you know it's it's a i don't know i haven't read oh, any yeah. reviews the there's no buzz about this book have you noticed about this i right have now? noticed like, this yeah there's nobody's like no talking reviews about it. i'm not seeing mm-hmm. tweets i'm not seeing instagrams i'm not seeing anything about it so that's and i and i think i understand that's why because it's yeah. it's not a huge win I think now there's there's racial elements, there's sexuality things going on in this book that are interesting. The the part that I found most compelling is in a way it feels like it's about an an accrual of minor slights, unintended screw-ups, I guess frowned upon behavior that is technically won't get you fired or put in jail, but frowned upon and gossiped about. Mm. And then those things start compi- those things start building on each other and they start intersecting in these very strange ways. And I'm not sure it added up to anything mm. for a while. I was like, Oh, maybe this is going to have a big sort of like a uh, great Gatsby denouement where all these like simmering tensions really like break out. And she doesn't go there, which is, which is interesting. interesting. Like there's tension and things come to a head, but it's not, it's not explosive in a way. It changes people's lives. I'm not exactly sure how it changes their lives. There's very few consequences, but no one's happy. And I'm trying not to spoil it because I think actually knowing what does and doesn't happen, you're going to, you're going to be wondering about these characters and it goes in some places you expect and some places you don't. But I don't know. I, I guess if you don't want to hear any kind of spoiler and the show, we're almost done. Be fine. But the 38-year-old professor goes down. She starts researching. She wants to talk to um, undergrads who are super, they're like wedding aficionados. They love weddings. They love TikTok. Mm. This is before that. But they love weddings. They're just super into it. Because she's going to write a book about like people obsessed with weddings. Okay. Um, a pop culture kind of book. You can even see this kind of book. Like sure. the wedding fans or you know the wedding crashers, I guess, use the same title, but make mm-hmm. it more of a um, <laughs> cultural study. And she starts, you know, listening and she she forms a relationship with a 24-year-old RA so that she can listen and sort of overhear them talking and then use them in her Teen Vogue articles, mm. right? Nothing technically wrong, right? No no yeah. fireable offense, but not right. Ethical gray um, areas, yeah. Ethical, it's all ethical gray areas. Um, the 24-year-old RA has a coming out experience of like being attractive to this woman and makes the first move, kisses her. And then they have a on again a weekend love affair. Now they're oh. not. She's not your professor. favorite trope. Of well, teacher. I think I think Reed is playing with these little <laughs> yeah. one step away from the real like cringe thing. Like it's certainly mm-hmm. not illegal. Like it's not Lolita, but right. it's also not against the HR hand guide. But right. also we sort of prefer people didn't do this. But you know, on the other hand. They're consenting adults. And there's like several things like that. There's pranking. Yeah, like a, there's an accident that someone doesn't handle very well. They do something and anyway, something bad happens. It's not, not a, it's a bad thing, mm-hmm. but like not a horrible thing. And they freeze in the moment and run away, which again, is not great, but you can kind of understand it. But also it's not the, so like there's a bunch of these things, which I found kind of interesting, but 
I almost feel like one anecdote in a short story kind of gets me to the same place. Mm, and it filled out with a lot of backstory I'm not sure that I really needed. Um, like the characters were hard to, again, I think part of her point was this flood of like 20-year-old, you know, kind of experience in a dorm. It's hard to yeah. distinguish between them. They kind of come and go and there's a bunch of them and they're in their own attitude of flux. So I found it to be an interesting mess. Um, I think... I, I don't know where Reed goes from here. I think maybe she was interested in the kind of discomfort of that such a fun age had, right? Mm-hmm. But to go, it, it's just like a, it's an odd setting to be 10 years ago in a dorm at the University yeah. of Arkansas. Like, I feel like there's something there. It just didn't quite materialize in a way that, that worked for me. So I don't know. Does that's that make interesting. Sense? Yeah, that, that's it, kind of it does. Opinion. It sounded like it felt like it was going to be death of a thousand cuts, but it's like a thousand cuts and no death. Like they yeah. don't add up to something. Um, Unless it's the feeling of like we all sort of behave badly and maybe we should cut people some slack, but also don't do that. Like that's kind of a weird. Mm. There's some cognitive dissonance there. Um, there's no good actor. Yeah, here. there's no one who's above it, the fray. Yeah, it's and interesting. Yet, I don't know. I think if you read this, it'll be interesting to see which of the characters you're the most um, either sympathetic towards, or anyone. I'm t- not mm-hmm. you in general, Rebecca. Just the, which yeah. one do you feel the more, more or less sympathy for? Because I think she's very careful not to have like here is the person behaving rightly, and they yeah. are the pillar of virtue and strength and meaning. And not even I think there's protagonists. I think you feel sympathy for all of them, but all of them do things like, eh, maybe don't eavesdrop. And, like eavesdropping, mm-hmm. it's like it's not that bad. But also right. don't do it. Like I think that's interesting. That those kinds of spaces are like, but that's like yeah. curb your enthusiasm and like, territory. I'm not don't sure to go sleep from with there. your subject when you're a journalist. Well, that, but, but it's not, not as bad subject, as you're their but professor. They are. It's yeah, not as bad. you develop no. trust, but you're not really telling them what you're doing mm-hmm. with that trust. Yeah, that that's interesting. Um, it was interesting. I mean, so it wasn't a complete miss, even if you can hear me talking about. It. I think there's something there. But you don't say there. I think there's something about there about a book that truly worked. I guess is what. <laughs> I guess I, that's for yeah. Me I think least, I listening say. to you talk about it, I understand the the thumbs down yeah. emoji this morning. I'm like, yeah, we don't need to do a book club episode about this because it doesn't sound like we're gonna get somewhere in figuring out what the there there is. Yeah, I think it actually would be a good discussion to have, but I don't know that it's going to be a, around at the end of the year. Yeah, you know, if that's one of our. One of our quadrants when we're deciding to do is like, this is a book that's going to be in the conversation in some way. It doesn't feel like mm-hmm. it's going to be. Um, I've been wrong before, of course, but uh, that's my take right now. So, All right. Okay. Interesting. Thank you for... We'll call that a show. Going there first. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was... Yeah. I mean, if, you, if you're if you interested in it anyway, it's easy to get through. There's some, there's some good yeah. set pieces and interesting, but it's hard to recommend just on its face. Uh, okay. Uh, show notes, bookwrite.com slash listen podcast at bookwrite.com is our email. There's the Patreon. There's the newsletter. There's first edition. Uh, there's Rebecca's Better Living Through Books newsletters. Uh, we need we need like an acronym for all this stuff. Uh, I don't know how we're going to do this. The, the flotilla <laughs> yeah. of BR pod. The, B, the, uh, the BR extended universe. The <laughs> On the 10% Happier podcast, Dan Harris calls it the moment of blatant self-promotion. He's like, BSP, yes. let's get into it. And I, I appreciate that. <laughs> I like that. I like <laughs> we might that. co-opt I like that. that. Yeah. Um, so if you're interested in the BRPEU, all the links are in the show notes there. Uh, next week, a recording tonight, I'm actually recording with Trish and Jess from Book Rights Win and Romance podcast. 
to do a kind of Valentine's check-in in the world of romance. So you want to know more about romance, what's going on in the world of romance. I, I don't know this question. What do the capital R romance readers, what is their relationship to romanticy right now? Mm, how are they feeling interesting. about that? What, what are, yeah. How are we feeling about the commercial appeal, the mainstreamification of romance? I got a lot of interesting questions for them, maybe some recommendations. What's hot? What are some underknown gems? Um, so I'm looking forward to that. So that'll be yeah. out next week. They're a good hang. That's going to be fun. That'll be fun. That'll be fun. Other than that, uh, Rebecca, we'll talk to you later. Yeah, have a good one. 